Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Oh, welcome to the On The Tape podcast, the final podcast of 2023. Guys, I'm Dan Nathan, Danny Moses. Indulge me for a second. I have a Spotify playlist, as you all know. It currently comprises approximately 865 songs. There's a band that you both love that I'm, you know, sort of ish about. I have three of their songs on my Spotify playlist. Dan Nathan, you want to take a shot real quick? Do you know the group? I think it's the Pearl Jam. No, it's not. Danny Moses. I, I don't know. I It's not the Eagles because you love no, them. That's, not, you, not, but, I, but please, as yeah, we end 2023, Eagles. it's not the Eagles. It's not Eagles. Oh, Eagles. Okay, there's no right. the in front of Eagles. It's just Don Felder <laughs> listens to this podcast. He's no longer a member of the band, but he would be insulted by that. No, the band is U2. I know Uh you both love the band U2. And in 1983, Dan Nathan, they released uh, War. Yep. One of the songs on that is New Year's Day. And I'm thinking about some of the lyrics there. All is quiet on New Year's Day. Pretty quiet here on the Western Front as the market just continues to grow higher. But the one line that really resonates with me, Dan, is, Nothing changes on New Year's Day. And I'm looking at the markets today and I'm looking at the markets a year ago. And for a lot of these things, nothing changed. But you know what? You went below below the surface underneath the hood and you discovered that some things have changed and some things have remained the same. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And it's a great lyric too, Guy, because I think about it and we're all, a lot of investors very reflective this time of year, a lot of people for a whole host of reasons, but I like to start like this. Okay, so this time last year, the S&P 500 was 3,800. Today, it's almost 4,800 back to its all-time highs from January of 2022. The VIX last year at this time was 21. It's interesting. Before the financial crisis, the average of the VIX, okay, this is going back to the 2008 period, okay, was about 20. We had become very comfortable with the 20 VIX. Post-financial crisis in the world of ZERP, we got very used to low teens, right? So we were at 21 in the VIX this time last year. We're below 13 now. Look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Last year this time, it was 3.88%. Look where it is right now. It's just about 
the same. The US dollar index was 103 and a half or so. Here we are down at 108. Crude was 80. Now we're about 73. Gold was 1800. Here you go, people. Here we are up at 2100. Okay. So it's interesting. Bitcoin was 17,000. Today it's 42,000. So I think about what's going on. There's a lot of risk on flashing, right? And there's also some risk off flashing, which I think makes 2024 that much harder to decode right here if we're just thinking about things year over year. And of course, we can talk about sentiment readings that are just off the chart. We can talk about earnings expectations, which a year ago was much higher for this year. I think FactSet has us coming in for S&P 500 in 2023, less than 1% growth. We all know that the current consensus is up 11% year over year. So something's got to give there. And, and lastly, I know we spent a lot of time on the pod over the last few weeks talking about this, a lower dollar, lower crude, lower inflation readings, all good for S&P earnings. So maybe that is something that kind of buoys a little bit. But to your point, Guy, it makes sense to kind of look back a year ago and what was prevailing wisdom and where we are right now. I want to be with you, be with you night and day. Everything's going to change on New Year's Day. All right. So let's think about where we were this time last year, what we were expecting and not expecting. So let's go through the greatest hits of 2023. I think the Microsoft investment in the open AI chat GPT set the stage, obviously, for this AI phenomenon that went on that was accelerated in the May quarter that NVIDIA came out with. And that kind of started that. That was one thing. We rolled into 2023. We were actually concerned about the reverse repo market and what could happen, just what was going on in the rate market, what was going on with people moving their cash and sorting their cash, obviously, to, to bonds from deposits, right? Look what happened. We blew up Silicon Valley Bank. When Silicon Valley Bank blew up, it wasn't just about the banking system. It was about venture capital at the exact same time. And so there was two prongs to that. The other thing happened, obviously, Dan just mentioned crypto went from 17,000, obviously rallied, rallied big during the course of the year. But remember, that huge drop we had during the course of 22 and the beginning of 23 exacerbated the Silvergate signature bank failures that went on too. So we're here cleaning up messes. The two things that stand out to me the most in the first half of 2023 that set the stage were obviously the bailout of the banks, the $500 billion BTFP facility that came in, and then also the debt ceiling, which I kept talking about. I don't think got enough looks in terms of what happened there. They basically uncapped the limit through January to 2025 to get to the elections. Those things come in the first half of the year, right? And then we saw what happened. You had wage gains, obviously, across the board, but more importantly, labor gaining power throughout 2023 with auto strikes, with strikes in Hollywood, strikes at various companies. I think that will continue in 2024 is going to be a theme. So we tried to predict, obviously, what would happen. We got some things right and some things wrong. I know Guy and I loved gold. That was one thing we looked at. We said if it didn't work in 2023, it never would work. It actually worked for the right reasons. And the market worked for the same reason. The market worked because rate cuts got pulled forward. So I thought the Fed was going to raise once in 2023 and be done. They raised four times. I think it would have been one time if it was not for the BTFP that came in. As a matter of fact, Goldman Sachs, I just want to put this in context. Everybody like, are you right today? Are you wrong today? Are you short-term thinking? Goldman Sachs, right after the Silicon Valley implosion, said, Fed's done for the year. But look what happened. The market was so quick to react to that liquidity that came in. So again, we try to just present the facts and set up everything else. We don't know what's going to happen in the world, but a lot transpired in 23. And I think it'll be a lot more volatility in 24. 
Yeah, I want to be crystal clear. In terms of the broader market, it would have been very difficult for me to be more wrong than I was. But we play this game, Dan, on CNBC's Fast Money from time to time. If I had told you this, what do you think would have happened? So let's just play it out just a little bit. Danny just mentioned Silicon Valley Bank. At the time, by the way, that was the 16th largest bank in the United States. So if I had told you at the beginning of the year, the 16th largest bank in the United States would go under in the blink of an eye, 10-year yields would spike to 5%, we'd still have an inverted yield curve at the end of 2023, basically now challenging the all-time record for duration of inversion. Russia-Ukraine would be continuing on. Oh, by the way, there'd be a war in the Middle East that's threatening to bring in other countries and escalate. President Xi sat down with President Biden and said, and I'm paraphrasing, by any means necessary, we will take over Taiwan. That was said a few weeks ago in that San Francisco meeting. There are a number of different things as well. Credit contraction from banks in a very precipitous way. All these different things that we seemingly talk about every day. And if I had told you all those things would happen at some point this year, where's the S&P? And I said, I easily, we're south of 4,000. Yet, Dan, as you mentioned, we're about to close effectively at an all-time high, which I'll use the word again, is remarkable. So do you say to yourself, okay, guy, how did you get it so wrong? Dan, the things that I really missed was the amount of liquidity that was still flooding the system. And as Danny just said, two things in terms of the Treasury and with sort of some of the card games that they played with Janet Yellen and some of the things that she said and did, and subsequently the importance of that bank failure to the broader market. I should have realized at the time, as dire a situation as that was, that could have been a catalyst for the broader market for quite some time. So I'll go back and re examine and try to figure out the things that I got wrong. But the market is never easy. Just when you think you have this thing figured out, it always has a way of humbling you. Yeah, and I guess the one thing I'd say is that I have a little PTSD from that 2000 to 2002 period in a way, and that was really the last time that we had consecutive years where the U.S. stock market closed down. So if you think about that, in 00, we were down 10%. In 01, we were down 13%. In 2002, that was the gut punch year. It was down 23%. And then when you go to like the 2008, the financial crisis, we had one year that the S&P was down. In 2008, it was down 38 percent. And, and that really was the game changer. I know, Danny, you could wax poetically about what happened there differently than what happened in the post.com recession and, and bear market. But we just have never had consecutive down years again. Last year, guy, what I would say is down 20 percent in the S&P. And now here we are up 25 percent, up 50 percent in the NDX and NASDAQ 100, up 44 percent in the NASDAQ. We just discounted a lot of all those things that you just rattled off. That's what I got wrong. And I think I've been far less critical of the Fed on a whole host of issues than you guys. And you guys have different views about that. I don't mean to like lump you guys together. If we were to give the Fed a report card for 2023, you'd say to yourself, they avoided all of the worst case scenarios. And you could say they kicked them down the road, possibly. But what were we thinking in mid-March? What were the knock-on effects, right, of these banks going under and then underappreciating 
like some of the efforts that they took to ease the pain on the U.S. economy, avoiding some sort of like credit issues that held up. Guys, go back to mid-March and the conversations we were having with friends of ours in private tech and VC. It was near like September 2008 sort of stuff for them. Think about that, okay? And what happened a month later, everybody's all in on AI in both private and public markets and we're ripping again. Think about that. So some pretty extraordinary things happen and I'll just go back to the Fed. I think that it's really easy to sit there and look at Fed Chair Powell. There's a couple meetings where he did look a little bit rattled in those pressers and did not do a great job, but they really towed the line and they really kept things together for all intents and purposes. And if you think about how badly the European economies are doing still right now and how badly the Chinese economy is, and here we are, we're defying every sort of logic that we've known about like economics and markets and everything like that. And you could say that maybe it's all a big mirage, but right now it doesn't feel that way because a lot of folks, whether you be a consumer or uh, operating a business or an investor, you feel pretty decent. But I think the election year changes all of that to Danny's point about volatility. I think that things are going to get raw next year in a way that 16 and 2020 and even those 2022 midterms were starting to bubble up. I think we start feeling that all different parts of our lives in 2024. And that's not me being a doomsayer. I'm just saying, I feel like we coasted through what could have been a pretty nasty two-year period in 2022 and 23. And I think things come home to roost in 2024. I mean, Dan, you mentioned at the end of last year that inflation will prove to be transitory. And, you, and I think you said that, meaning it will come down pretty harshly in 2023. And that was the right call. I think that the Fed's report card is completely, at least from the public, is based on the stock market. And they were calling for their heads, obviously, in October before the market rallied. What really changed? Obviously, you know, inflation came down here a lot. But I think it kind of remains to be seen how they do here. And if they actually pulled forward these rate cuts or created market expectations of full, pull forward too quickly, that may self-fulfill a bit of inflation coming back. And I'm focusing on the services side of inflation, not on the good side. But let me go back to one thing we talked about at the end of 2022, which was, and I said it, and I, you, I think you guys were on board. I said the biggest M&A would happen in energy. If I had given you that landscape and told you that the stocks would be flat, just partly down this year when I said the largest sectors would be if you're in investment banking, go to your energy bankers right now because that's where this is all going to occur. And that happened. So I believe without giving too much away in 2024, again, sector that did not perform, sector that underperformed, obviously, during the course of 2023 on a relative basis, I think it's now set up even better considering that you're going to have these deals, which probably will close hopefully at some time during 2024, that if you are a soft landing person, you cannot ignore the geopolitical risks that are out there, and most of them impact oil directly. All these geopolitical conflicts impact oil directly. I think that's a sector that we're going to want to look at. So when we look back, you can even have the right information and not get the stocks right. Dan made the point here, which I think is a good one. The mania of NVIDIA and AI overtook anything. And I'll say this, book in the year again in 2023, the chase that started. We entered 2023 very negative in a very defensive setup. After a week or two, the chase was on. We tried to close the year the same way. Things were very bad, but the chase started to happen and the momentum built in November and look where we are today. So we bookended the chases that went on, but in the middle, what I'm focused on and a lot of those issues in the middle are going to be the same issues we're going to face in 2024, in my opinion. It's interesting. I'm so happy you brought up energy. If you had told me now, remember at the end of 2022 into 2023, we had just heard from Chevron. I think it was October. They announced a $75 billion stock buyback. And as it turns out, that proved to be the top in that stock and probably in energy stocks across a wide swath. But if I had told you again, all the things that Danny just said, the XLE started the year 
at 84 and a half. The XLE today is 84 and a half. It is amazing. Given everything that's transpired, that thing is effectively flatlined. Now, when I say flatlined, it did trade down to about 75. It did trade up to about 93 or so. But here we are at the exact same level, which again, to use the word, is remarkable. And I'll say this, there are some names in the space that are making all-time highs. We've mentioned Phillips 66 a number of times. Marathon Petroleum, for example. Valero's had a decent year, not great. But those big cap integrated names, the M&A around the space, the valuation, Dan, the fact that they operate so much better today than they did even just five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, and how poorly those stocks have traded over the last four or five months is astonishing to me. Now, I think Danny just hit the nail on the head in terms of the reasons why. I think there is a rotation out of energy, understanding you're not going to get the same bang for your buck as you will on some of these high flyers, but that doesn't mean the space is not investable or the space you should just throw to the curb. Because I think, again, like I thought in 2023, I think there's going to be a lot happening in 2024 in the energy patch. I take a slightly different view than you guys. I think it was a great call, the M&A, and it might end up appearing for different reasons. You know, as we think about it, it might become a financial engineering story, if you will. So it's about, Guy, you've highlighted that Chevron buyback that they announced, you know what I mean, over a year and a half ago when the stock was then all-time highs. And then bookend that with a, a year later, this massive acquisition. And, and again, you could say, why is crude oil down? We have a war in the Middle East that doesn't look like it's abating. We have issues as it relates to shipping lanes in the Middle East that might only get worse. And we have an issue in the South China Sea and Taiwan. Like there's a whole host of reasons why you could make the case why crude oil should be at 100, why the XLE should be at 100, but they're both not, right? That's one of the reasons to me, I'm not that optimistic about it. You could say they're cheap and they give return a lot of cash and, and maybe a bunch of M&A that might never happen in a regulatory environment that might not be conducive to it. It just might not be that investable. That's my, my, my kind of take on energy. But the one thing that I, I, going back to last year, Danny, and I'm, I'm so glad that you listened to that pod again and made, made a bunch of notes. The China situation, China was supposed to be a huge boon, right? The, the reopening story there, and this was going to be one of the things that, that was going to power the global economy. It did not in 2023. And one of the things going back to the kind of all that transitory stuff is not only are we in the other side of high single digits inflation readings here. And again, I get it while you're focused on services, Danny, but if China's deflationary readings that we are getting, are exported to around the world, we might have much lower crude oil, might have much lower growth. The Fed Chair Powell at his last presser suggested that they ratcheted down just a tad their GDP estimates for next year to 1.4%. What if we go into a deflationary environment? And that was something that we were worried about pre-pandemic in a well. So China to me seems like a big problem. And I'm not sure like the world is ready for that, especially with heightened geopolitical stuff. And the last thing I'll just say is that if we have heightened geopolitical tensions, there is not a playbook that is 100% saying that we should have an increased demand in some of the commodities that we expect, right? Because that's been going on, again, all year long, and we just haven't seen meaningfully higher prices there. The other thing as it relates to China and just markets globally, when we had strategists come on during the course of the year, whoever it might be, the one thing that I tried to understand, grapple with, and I don't know how to price this into the market in terms of the multiple in the S&P is, if the US is the sexiest game in town in terms of any growth at all around the world, then it should trade it a premium to its historical multiple on the S&P. And that's fair. So 15, 16, 17 is the average. You can stick it up at 19 and 20. And shorting things just on valuation alone doesn't necessarily work because there is a scarcity value.
value for what people will pay for growth. And I think I underappreciated that. And that's a very hard thing to quantify. I want to talk about credit because it was the one thing that people are looking for. And listen, it hasn't gotten better. Maybe it hasn't deteriorated as quickly as we thought. But you think about the commercial real estate credit issue that is sitting and was sitting on a lot of regional bank portfolios. It got absorbed in some of these large transactions that went on in the market in the M&A and banks, but still are going to be an issue going into 2024. I don't care where rates go. The amount of maturities that are coming in 2024 and 25 in commercial real estate, I think is over a trillion dollars. And then grapple that with consumer credit. And consumer credit certainly is getting worse. It's not degrading. I don't think at the speed people had thought. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And the big banks are prepared for it. But from where we sit right now with savings for the consumer and the amount of spending that went on, again, underappreciated what people would spend post-COVID breakout. And the U.S. consumer is always stronger than you think it's going to be. I think those issues are still going to be around in 2024. And so they didn't manifest themselves during the course of 23, at least they did in various bouts of this we had, but something I'm definitely focused on as we get into 2024 on the commercial and the consumer side on credit. Yeah. Let me just jump in here because I, again, incorrectly, I thought there'd be some sort of credit event in 2023. And maybe to a certain extent, we saw it with some of these larger banks. I don't think that's exactly what I was looking for, but obviously it didn't manifest itself. And I'm not wishing for this by any stretch of imagination. I'm just hard pressed to understand how something's not going to break along the way. And you look at bank credit, it's contracting, I don't want to say at record levels, but in a very precipitous way that I don't think enough people are paying attention to. And Dan, when you look at our economy, that is, again, 70% or so driven by people buying things. Small business in this country, small and medium-sized business employ, I think, north of 65% of the people in this country. Then you start doing the math. The lifeblood of our country is credit. If credit contracts, it affects those companies and therefore those employees. And to think that our economy can still chug along and subsequently our market against that backdrop, it's very hard for me to wrap my head around this. And the instrument that I look at, the HYG is the iShares High Yield Corporate Bond ETF. It's something we talk about all the time. It's not something that actively trades or trades in very large ranges. It effectively trades in a very small range. But when you see outsides moves, either the upside or the downside, you take notice. I only mention that because this is something that should basically trade in the midpoint of what we call an RSI, a relative strength index. It really doesn't move, so it never should be pinned to the upside as an overbought or pinned to the downside as basically an oversold. Yet today, we're looking at an HYG that is trading north of 80 for a 14-day period, the highest ever since these statistics have been accumulated. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like All these things I look at, I'm like, what are people looking at that I don't see? Now, quite frankly, again, they've been right, but man, oh man, you put all these things together, Dan, and it's, what's that phrase I use all the time? Which is brew. Danny jumped in. Thank you, Danny, for that. If that's deep end of the pool stuff, I'll bring it back to an area that folks have been chasing, and, and it's in that same narrative, and, and this would be small cap stocks. So you just mentioned that, like their exposure to credit. And so if you look at the Russell 2000, 
it's up 26% off of a 52-week and two-year low in, in about two months, right, since the end of October. But it's still down 17% from its late 2021 highs. And when you just think about that, why is that lag so much? If we have an S&P that's about to make a new all-time high, we have an NDX that has made a new all-time high. We have the NASDAQ composite, which is just a few percent from its all-time high. And I think it really highlights guy, exactly what you're talking about in a way. Yeah, there's been a chase for beta there. And I think folks feel like if you're in the soft landing camp, have to go for small caps. But I do think it's the higher it goes here is the harder it gets hit if we start to see some of those issues as it relates to credit in the not so distant future. And you might get a lot more bang for your buck in a Russell 2000 to the downside than playing for the HYG, right? And, and waiting for that to happen too. So that's one of the, I, I just think it's interesting that I think that small caps is a lot on a lot of people's chase list, Danny, if you, if you will, heading into the new year. Yeah, for sure. And just to follow up on Guy's comment on the 14-day RSI on the HYG, which is at an all-time high, this time last year, it was 36, right? And I want to bring this up because I think this is important just from a sentiment perspective in general, whether you're bearish or bullish, just keep an eye on those things because we get oversold at various times and we get overbought at various times. But here's the problem I have as a fundamental bottom-up person in terms of how I look at the market. When things are running like they are now, what is your sell signal? It's momentum because some things are so above historic valuation, not the overall market necessarily, but just names that trade a multiple of revenues. Flip side of that is when things get oversold and very bearish, I feel like there's a foundation to buy things because there are companies that trade at eight times earnings, four times cash flow, whatever it might be, dividend yield that are long-term signals of when to buy. So I'm much more comfortable in actually in a sell-off and a bearish sentiment tape buying things than I am in a bullish sentiment tape either chasing things or not. Because that's the problem, is that the whole crowd is now just chasing things. And what is the basis other than momentum and it's fun and these are great, quote, stories. And so that's how I'm built. And then I'm not going to change who I am. And so I'll miss 10, 20, 30% on some of these names. But just so your people understand, when everybody gets overly bearish, I think that's an opportunity to kind of buy things. And I think, again, 2023, we've seen glimpses of stock picking opportunities and buying. I'm picking opportunities. Get it ready for 2024 on both sides of the equation here, because I think sentiment will sway heavily and the VIX will sway heavily. No question about it. We'll talk about the VIX. I'm not certain, again, and Dan knows more about this than I do, but I'm not certain the VIX in terms of the instrument, again, to go back five or so years, it seemingly has changed a great deal in terms of maybe it's the usage of it or some of the external factors forcing it down. So I look at the VIX here with the 13 handle, whatever it is, and I say to myself, it doesn't make sense. But maybe I'm saying to myself, it doesn't make sense in my world five, six, seven or so years ago. Maybe the world has changed just in terms of that, because we have seen obviously instances where historically the VIX would spike 25, 30%. And we have not seen that at all this year. And even a day in the middle of December, when you had that huge outside reversal to the downside, I think it was December 19th or something around there, the VIX barely budged. Yeah, it traded up a little bit, but not nearly as much as it would have done, again, historically. So I'm going to take a critical look in terms of how I evaluate the VIX going forward. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. 
iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Dan, we all sat on trading desks for a long time, and it's interesting. That's one hat we all wore. We wear a different hat now to a certain degree. We obviously do podcasts. We do daily shows. We do daily shows for CNBC. And the question that we get all the time is the underlying question is, what do you think of the market? So we're tasked to sort of talk about the market on a day-to-day basis, which is fine. And through that lens, there has to be a consistency to your thought. You know, it's very easy to be bullish on the days the market goes up and bearish on the days that market goes down. And to a certain extent, there are people that do that without ramification but it's disingenuous at best, and it's other words at worst. We are not those people. We try to keep a consistency of thought, and one of the questions we get all the time is, when will you change your mind? Under what set of circumstances are you going to go from bearish to bullish? And that's something that I struggle with all the time. But it's important to point out, when you're on a trading desk each day, you can change gears, you can get into different lanes very quickly over the course of hours, if not days, whereas when you're sitting in our seats, you got to, to a certain extent, remain in your lane until traffic situations dictate otherwise. The traffic situation in terms of the punditry that we do hasn't changed at all. Maybe the lane has gotten less occupied as more people have gone to that fast bullish lane, but it's still the lane that I want to sort of remain in. Yeah, I love the way you set it up too, guys. So we get asked this question multiple times a day, whether it be on uh, a TV show or people we bump into in the street or family members or friends, what do you think of the market? What do you think of the market? And we used to get that before we were ever pundits, right? When we were working at uh, on a trading desk at a bank or a hedge fund or something like that. And like the truth is, it's like you can say one thing and you can give a lot of like examples of why you feel that way. A week later, you can do the same thing. We can't really do that, right? How we're set up right now. So we have frameworks, right? The way we talk about things. And I think it's important to go back. I started doing CNBC in April of 2009, guys. Like the balls ass lows of the market, right? Think about that. I think, what did we just trade in the S&P? 666 or something like that a few weeks before. And so for me, one of the things as I guess a professional investor in, in all the years up until that point, I used to look up on the screens and to your point guy and see people who are like 90% of the time just always bullish, right? And so for me, what I thought would be a fun exercise, and I've explained this before, is I didn't think I was going to be on CNBC 14 years later still doing all the things. I was like, let me take the other side of this. Let me think like the intellectual exercise of trying to pick apart what I felt were universal bullish sort of views that were just always consensus, whether the market was up, whether the market was down. And that's the framework in which I've been operating on 
on, you know what I mean? But I think that we do our work. We try to give a lot of really good reasons for why the other way could go. And I tend to be contrarian last year on numerous occasions in 2022, guys, like we got bullish. Now, the one mistake that I made this year, not a single time in a raging bull market in 2023, did I say it was time to buy them. Not in late October. I was fairly confident that at the S&P in, in mid to late October was going to be unchanged in the year at some point for a whole host of reasons. I laid them out. We show up every day. We detail them. We admit when we're wrong. I think that's really important. So to me, I say this all the time. We're not your hedge fund manager. We're not your investment advisor, your stockbroker, but we will be intellectually honest about all of this stuff all the time. And we show up again every day and we're doing it. I don't really care about the folks that are stickering. Oh, this guy's been bearish since April, 2009, this and that or whatever. I know the work that goes into like our commentary and I know how difficult it is to do it in a public facing way, the way in which we do it daily. So again, like to me, I just think it's an important exercise to have. If you want to find podcasts with people who are always bullish, whether the market's up or down, and really good at talking out of both sides of their mouth. There are plenty of them out there, people. Trust me, we could put a list of, no, we can't, in the show notes. But, I, and Danny, you might have some views on this because you've been doing this an awful long time. And I think that you value punditry. And there's some folks that you think are really additive, even though, and I'll, I'm going to give one big shout out. I'm going to turn it over to you guys. Mike Wilson, okay, at Morgan Stanley has been, in my opinion, maligned in a way uh, by some folks that I used to have a lot of respect for. Okay. This guy has been so right on so many things for so long and to not change his tune in 2023 and take the heat that he has taken, despite the fact that his customers, an institutional investor, okay, II, have ranked him number one this year, right? You know what I mean? Like to me, that says that's the difference between the peanut gallery on Twitter or whoever it is that is lobbing in mean tweets to some guy that they see on CNBC or Gal or something like that versus their peers and their customers. And I think that's a really important distinction, Danny. Yeah, listen, you need balance out there. And for those of you out there, if the three of us went bullish, you should certainly sell everything at that point because I think we look out, but you want us on that wall and you need us on that wall to show you the things that actually can go wrong. And Dan, you hit it. What I saw, obviously, front row seat in, you know, 2006, seven and eight, it's hard to ignore those type of things happening. And we're not going to have that type of situation again. But when you see stuff in the credit world that's being ignored by equity or vice versa, I just can't ignore it. And I know what will happen eventually. It doesn't mean the market can't go up here. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean we're going to have some crazy incident that's going to occur in credit. Although that was, if you had told us again on our bingo card that some of the largest banks would go out of business in the spring of 2023, we wouldn't have that necessarily. But maybe, you know, it's a faith in the central banks. It just doesn't end. And we have now pulled forward we are six and a half cuts now, priced in almost seven in 2024. We're literally pricing that in right now. So I'm not saying it's going to trade that. I'm not saying, oh, if inflation rears its head, it's going to be a reason the market's going to sell off. But I feel like that's also what happened in 2023 as we pulled forward the rate cut expectations of what would be occurring. And so we have a lot of people on. We try to find balance. I've always told people, if you're long a stock, find someone that's shorted. If you're short a stock, find someone that's long it. have a discussion. You can evaluate it for yourself. So what I'm focused on now is, as we turn the calendar here in 2024, right out of the gate, we have the potential for a government shutdown, which leads us into the next conversation, which is the election in 2024. Probably the most important election of our lifetimes, and not just how it's going to affect the economy, but how it's going to affect the world going forward. And so you're going to see reports of, in an election year, stocks tend to trade up. 
up, all the stuff you're going to see. But again, I think it's easier said than done. And as these things go through the course, like I said, in January, potential shutdown, February again, potential shutdown, there's two funding bills that need to pass. I think all this is going to come back up. Again, people are comparing this to the 90s and we're going to have this soft landing situation. In the 90s, debt to GDP was 45%. We're 125, 135%. Now that's a different story. And that's why I think government shutdown and stuff means more to the economy from the sense of just the budget itself and the government debt that we have. So let's talk about kind of 2024 here and what you guys are kind of looking for here. Well, it's interesting. Dan, who is that guy from the YouTube? Bono. Yeah, the Bono. Is that right? Yeah. You, did you see, have you yeah. seen them at this thing in Las Vegas? What no, I'm going to the thing? Sphere in February. I'm going to see him in February. The, the sphere. sphere. As I mentioned earlier, this New Year's Day song off of the album War, 40 years ago. But think of the genius of the members of uh, the band U2. And I think, what are there, three or four of those cats? But here is a four. lyric, Dan. There are four of them, right? That's good. All bands, if you're a real band, you should have four members. A bass player, lead guitar, drummer, lead vocalist. That's just me. Although Cream obviously fucked that trend. But here you go, because think about these lyrics, Dan. Under a blood red sky, a crowd has gathered in black and white. Arms entwined, the chosen few. The newspaper says, say it's true. And we can break through. Now, listen to this. Though torn in two, we can be one. Can we be one in 2024, given everything you read about, hear about, election year? Because quite frankly, it doesn't feel like we're one right now, which, I'll, by the way, is a U2 song as well. And, and, and it is off the Octung Baby album, and it is one of your three songs on your Spotify playlist. I know I used to sing that to my daughters when they were little babies. I love that song. One, I will tell you another thing that happened in 2023 and it's going to blow up in 2024 is Bono's son's band that Danny and I saw. It's called Inhaler. They opened for Pearl Jam on this limited tour that they had in September. I saw them a few times. I saw them in March at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City, and this band is going to blow up in 2024. So keep an eye on that, just threading the needle a little bit. But Danny, your point about the government shutdown in 2024, and again, it, it feels like we came and went, they kicked the can down the road in 2023 for that. Why that might be different in 2024 is because of the election year, right? And so I go back to, there's a lot of data and we'll put it in the show notes. Here's a note from Morgan Stanley talking about how election years are generally very good for the markets. Um, when a Republican was elected, 15.3% on average, this is going back nearly a hundred years, a Democrat was elected nearly eight percent all election years on average up about 11 percent and there's a lot of other data that you can throw in there that being said this might be a really interesting election year right now the two front runners we know very well we've seen a preview of this matchup and there's a lot of folks out there guys who do not expect at least one of them to be running in november which i think is really interesting and then the odds that the both of them are not running are not zero which i think is really interesting and and you can say that's normally the case as we're heading into a new year. We haven't even had the primaries yet, right? But when you think about the hold that Trump has over the Republican Party and the leadership that he has, and then you think of the DNC and the apparatus that they have in and around the incumbent President Biden, you say to yourself, what could actually possibly change? And so if you think about markets and you think about the near certainty that we have about the course of things, and basically we're 
sentiment readings are and the like, you say to yourself, what is the one thing that could upend investors right now? It could be a total shift in the political landscape here in the U.S. and the potential for massive uncertainty at a time where, as far as we're concerned, and I think you could take this out of this pod right now, the geopolitical uncertainty right now is at a level that I don't think any of us have seen in our adult lifetimes. You know what I mean? So you put all that together and you say to yourself, a 12 and a half VIX and an S&P that has basically round-tripped. It is a V reversal from January of 2022, where it is right now. And you say to yourself, what are the positives that could catapult this stock market in incrementally higher above this 4,800 level, given all the uncertainty we have right now? And to me, I think the risks shift to the downside. We're not a political show, but Dan is correct. And Danny's correct to bring up all of those things because clearly under the backdrop of the VIX, which I mentioned earlier, is probably a bit of a flawed instrument, but regardless, something you need to look at is not pricing any of this in whatsoever. And the market is seemingly trading as if there will be no events just through the lens of politics next year. And I'm hard pressed to believe, given everything that we see on almost a daily basis, that something odd is not going to happen and potentially a market moving event. So clearly that's something we have to look out for as well. And the government shutdown thing, this is a very it's a very polarized environment right now. And there will be a faction of people, I think, that will push that envelope yet again as we enter 2024, Danny. And again, the market doesn't seem to care whatsoever, but that's something I'm waiting and looking for as well. Yeah, for sure. And there's one bet out there within the politics that I do like. I know we're going to get into my football picks oh, please. later, but Gretchen Whitmer to be on some ticket. Yeah. Gavin is, Newsom's ticket. 100%. No, or anybody's ticket is five to one. I think that's my outlier. Dan just said, it's not even clear who the running people. I like the Whitmer at five to one. I think she's going to emerge in the course of 2000. Dan, you've said that as well. I've thought, again, we, we don't want to sort of get out of our lanes, but I've thought for a while, and I said this, I think earlier this year, that I believe that President Biden will take himself out of the running early next year. When I say early, April, May-ish. So there are rules around the DNC that might prohibit him from doing that. But I think there's going to be some sort of workaround. And I do believe that Gavin Newsom's going to be on that ticket with Gretchen Whitmer. And I don't think necessarily that former President Trump is going to be the nominee on the Republican side of things. So we could see a complete wildcard election in 2024. About the DNC guy, like they do not have a slate of primary set up. And so you think about it's just it's just it's just timing. There's no way in which to do this unless there was some way. Biden has to take himself out of the game or has to be taken out of the game for some sort of health issue and then the DNC has to get going. And listen, they could speed up a lot of these sorts of things. And I think as far as the primary would work, they would coalesce around a handful of folks that could actually win. I think Kamala Harris has demonstrated from her showing in 2020 that she has no constituency. Her approval ratings are really low. And so the idea is going for some governors, right? And you'd say Gavin Newsom doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. There's really negative sentiment around his management of California. And it's at the center of a lot of these culture wars and the like. But Gretchen Whitmer, to your point, guys, this is a swing state who's got a very favorable sort of approval. And the other one, Danny, that's popping up is Josh Shapiro, the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, also a big swing state. So there would have to be some sort of like movement towards one of those sorts of governors because somebody on that ticket has to deliver a state 
that the DNC is worried about, if you think about it. Because if you think of the last two elections coming down to 80, 90,000 votes in four of those swing states, going to big blue states doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for the Democrats to put against a ticket that actually will be very abbreviated against a, a Republican Party that's been working towards this for four years. Just to bring it back to the markets and why it's important, because you could effectively say the reason oil's not going up or staying here is because a lot of drilling potentially in the future if the Republicans win everything. That's one. Two, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I talk about all the time, which is actually a case before the Supreme Court right now to see if their funding is even legal. What does that mean? It means a ton to their credit card companies, to the payday lenders, et cetera. And obviously that's in the political sphere. There are many sectors, banks, obviously, Wall Street banks in terms of funding requirements and capital requirements, things like that. So You need to pay attention to these things. So we're not political pundits, but in the same time, I think you need to ask yourself, why are certain sectors moving, doing well, doing poor? But I got news for people. Traditionally, right, you would expect if Republicans win to be tax cuts. I don't see how we can cut taxes. That's what's different this time. And the other thing I'll say, just to bring it back to the markets, is everything it feels like in the last few years has been, that's the first time that's ever happened. That's the first time that's ever happened. We've had an inverted yield curve. The market's supposed to be in a recession. Guess what? In an election year, what Dan just went through, which is what I made a joke of when I started this segment five minutes ago, seven minutes ago, was that, oh, you're going to hear all the pundits say stocks trade up in an election year. I think everything's out the window. And I think when COVID happened and it brought a lot, stunted a lot of things, accelerated a lot of things, changed how we live, the work at home, the stimulus, everything that went on, I think we're still unwinding all that. And we're also still unwinding 15 years of QE. And let me just get to one more prediction about 2024. If the shit does hit the fan in the markets, I have no doubt that the Fed will open their drawer and pull out various playbooks, right? TALF 2.0. For those people who don't know what TALF is, get ready. You're going to hear its name some point, I think, in the spring and summer of what's going to happen. That's a liquidity program to get the funding markets going again. Because keep in mind, people, that yes, the 10-year yields have come down. Funding costs have still remained elevated because they're much more tied to prime rate or SOF or whatever you want to look at, which is much more controlled on the short end. So again, going to be a, a wild 2024. I look forward to talking our way through it. And we're going to be here to help. And we're just pointing out what's kind of out there to make people think. Danny, when you start a season as an NHL franchise or an NBA, you start the season with a record of zero and zero. You haven't played yet. So you're unchanged. You're 500, right? And it's interesting that we discuss nothing changes on New Year's Day. Well, you started the season in the NFL at zero and zero. Season hadn't started yet. So your picks were 0 and 0. Yet here we are going into the penultimate week. We have two weeks left in the NFL season. Nothing's changed because you went from zero and zero to 23 and 23. So nothing changes on New Year's Day. But you know what, Danny? You're going to effort to sort of get on the right side of the 500 ledger. Red Hill Mining Town, one of the greatest, I think probably the most underrated U2 song of all time. I'm hanging on. I'm barely hanging on here. So I'm 500. And there's a lot of meaningful games this week, actually. But let me just make this short and sweet. Tampa Bay minus two and a half at home against New Orleans. They crushed them in October meeting. I think New Orleans stinks. Tampa Bay is playing well. Give me Tampa at home minus two and a half. And what's funny is I started the season and I tell people this. You always short the Super Bowl winner against the spread. There's always like a hangover effect. I've gone against myself in the last few weeks by taking the Chiefs multiple times. This time, however, at home against Cincinnati, they're going to get it right. Laying seven, Jake Browning is done. Kansas City is going to get it all together. Home again during the week, I think, cooking and everything, home cooking. Give me Kansas City minus seven. The two name, the two games that are meaningful also that I'm not picking is Baltimore minus three against Miami. That's for basically home field for the AFC playoffs. And Green Bay getting two at Minnesota. 
If I had to pick those two games, be, I'd take Baltimore, lay the points, and I would take Green Bay with the points, but I'm not picking them. But two other very meaningful games that are out there. Just get me to the playoffs already, guy. Yeah, please. We will do that. And the playoffs that neither the Jets nor the Giants will be a part of. And this is the portion of the podcast where we give thanks to a lot of people. First of all, obviously, I want to give thanks to both of you. Uh, We are teammates. We've been in this together a long time. I don't think any of us could do this without the other two people involved. And I am thankful for that. I'm also thankful for our team, Dan, Amanda, Jacob, Stephen, Timmy, doing a great job behind the scenes for us. This is something now we are finishing our third year, which is remarkable. And I got to give thanks to the audience that are with us each and every week. And they're stuck by us and we get great feedback from all of you. So thank you. And obviously our sponsors, Dan, that I want you to talk about. But we have some an incredible slate of sponsors that have been with us effectively for some of them the entire time before we even started this. Some that have come on halfway, but all have been there steadfast in our corner. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, CME Group right out of the gate in 2021, we're a sponsor of On The Tape Podcast. It's been a great partnership with them. We've done so much with them and we can't thank them enough. FactSet has been with us from the get-go with Market Call and On The Tape. So we have to thank FactSet and we use uh, all their data and analytics on the program. SoFi, our great friend Liz Young has been an amazing contributor to the pods, but also they've sponsored our efforts. We really thank them. I can Connections. We've had so much fun doing live events with them, interviewing their folks for the off the tape segments. And we're going to be down there at their uh, global alts in Miami in late January, doing a bunch of fun stuff from then. And then current, we've just had Stuart and Trevor joining us on the pods, OK Computer and on the tape. And we really thank them. And Roe has been uh, amazing for me personally, but also the Roe Body Program, but amazing partner with us with OK Computer. And you've seen Zach Rotano, the CEO, founder of that company on our pods. So it's just been an amazing year. All of those sponsors have just continued to support us. So we thank them very much. And also Carter Braxenworth has been doing a lot of great work with us since we started on Market Call. He's been on the tape with us. We got to thank Carter and Worth Charting there too. And then Danny, we got to thank your guys. You brought so many interesting voices to the pods over the last three years, Vinny and Porter of Seawolf. I see you simping for Seawolf today. The listener can't see it, but you're wearing your Seawolf capital. Those guys have been been amazing voices, along as Jim Chanos and, and, and so many others, Peter Bookbar, who've just been repeat folks on our, on our pod. So thank you to all of them and happy new year to all of them. Danny, we'll take any thank yous you want right now. If you, Yeah, if no, you're, listen, uh, I, would, I was going to say thank all the guests that have come on and yeah. deal with us. I learned a ton from them. <laughs> I hope they learned from us and built all these relationships and friendships because of it. And it's been an amazing three years. And I think this is going to be the most exciting year in 2024. So thank you guys for bringing me into this. And I look forward to many more ventures with you guys in 24, as Dan just mentioned, kicking off with the iConnections conference at the end of January, where we're going to have Steve Ives and myself and Porter and Vinny back together on a panel for the first time. Should be a interesting. Big short, so baby. I'm excited to rekindle all things and looking forward to a great 24. So yeah, and, and listen, I'll just say this. We got some great things that Danny's working on, and we're going to show you guys early next year. We just want to continue to iterate. We want to continue to listen to our listeners and our viewers and, and do things that like we think are in the ethos of what Rich Social Media was dreamed up to do in in the throes of 2020. So thank you to Guy. You showed up every day, man, in a way that I just, I would tell you when I first met you, I would not have thought that you'd be behind a podcast mic as frequently as you are. So it's been a lot of fun doing this with you guys. So I I hope everyone has a nice little break and we're going to get back to it next year. In the words of you two, 
I will be with you again in 2024. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.